Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this New Year's Day with an overview of the foreign policy landscape in 2023 and what might be in store in 2024 as wars rage and the search for peace seems daunting. Joining us is Stephen Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy magazine and the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War and Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. His latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And we will discuss his latest article at Foreign Policy magazine, A Practical Guide to Perpetual Peace, How to Take Realistic and Realist Steps Towards a More Utopian World Order. Then we'll look into the state of the economy in 2023 and what to expect in 2024, and speak with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest book's are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us on this New Year's Day is Stephen Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine, and the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy, and his latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And his latest article at Foreign Policy Magazine is A Practical Guide to Perpetual Peace how to take realistic and realist steps towards a more utopian world order. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Walt. Hi, Ian, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, uh, Stephen. And I'm thinking of uh, John Lennon. All we are saying is give peace a chance. It seems at this moment we're beset by the opposite, uh, give war a chance. In the case of Ukraine, it seems that Vladimir Putin's made it clear recently that he has no interest in peace talks and believes he can win in the long run. And obviously, he's finding it that by his use of information warfare and active measures, as opposed to military means, which is not going well for him in the Ukraine, that he thinks he can win and particularly win over the Republicans in the Congress and would bring back Donald Trump. And then the same is true to some extent. With Netanyahu, he's invested in keeping that war going because the longer the war goes, <laughs> the longer he stays in power and doesn't go to jail. So is this the situation that we're faced with at this moment where the two wars, and not to mention the war in Sudan as well, are basically not likely to end soon? 
Uh, I think that's probably right. And uh, I think the conflict in Gaza will probably end sooner, but it, of course, won't uh, change the underlying political conflict here. Uh, Hamas is not going to be eliminated by the Israeli uh, attacks uh, on Gaza. Uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is not going to be ended by this war. Uh, it's not going to resolve any of the political uh, difficulties. And it remains to be seen if any progress will be made on actually uh, trying to put that long conflict uh, to rest at some point uh, next year. Uh, Ukraine, I think, is a little bit different. It's not going to end anytime soon. Uh, I might disagree with you slightly. I think Putin is uh, reluctant to negotiate now, partly because he's uh, playing on the political trends in, uh, the, among Ukraine supporters, but also because in 2023, the military situation actually went in Russia's favor. Um, back in the fall of 2022, you'll remember the Ukrainians had made a, a couple of offensives that went uh, strikingly well, and many people in the West got very optimistic about their chances. But the bigger Ukrainian counteroffensive that began last spring and summer uh, did not succeed, and uh, the progress has been mostly on Russia's side, and I think that's given Putin uh, the belief that he can just wait this out uh, and eventually negotiate a very favorable deal on his terms. But you're basically right. That one's not going to end anytime soon either. But the, curiously, though, the reason I think that Putin is doing better in that war is that the U.S., in spite of all of Biden's pronouncements, have basically set all these red lines. You know, oh, you can't have this weapon system. You can't have these missiles. You can't have these tanks. You can't have these planes. And then months later, we undo the red line and say, oh, you can have them now. In the meantime, it gave the Russians plenty of time to build up these formidable defenses. So have you ever been puzzled by the U.S. talking a good game but not necessarily delivering in, uh, and the same with NATO in this yeah. war? Actually, no. I mean, I think the the uh, uh, way back, I think in 2014, uh, when uh, Russia seized Crimea, and there were talks about you know uh, arming the Ukrainians and getting them ready to take it uh, take it back, uh, I cautioned against that by saying the thing everyone had to remember here was that um, Russia ultimately cared more about this issue than we did. Uh, not more than the Ukrainians care about it, uh, of course, but that ultimately this was something happening right next to Russia, something that they regarded as an absolutely vital interest and something that they were willing uh, to send their own citizens to fight and die for. Uh, this was not something that anyone in the West was willing to do. Uh, you know, the Biden administration made it clear from day one that they were not sending U.S. troops to fight in Ukraine. Uh, they were hoping Ukraine could win with uh, lots of uh, economic and military aid. But I think the Biden administration and the rest of NATO all along said that we want to help Ukraine win, but we're not going to go to World War III to do it. Um, and given that there was a, a symmetry of stakes or a symmetry of resolve from the very beginning, uh, that put real constraints. Now, there's a whole separate question about whether or not we were wise to advise and equip the Ukrainians for this counteroffensive uh, that failed, uh, whether or not it would have been better to uh, arm the Ukrainians, prepare them to defend the rest of their territory, and in a sense, try to wait the Russians out uh, the other way. I think with hindsight, that looks like it would have been a better strategy. That may be where uh, Ukraine is headed now. Uh, but I think the fundamental problem from the very beginning was that this was not a conflict uh, that we cared as much about um, as Vladimir Putin did. So, Stephen Walt, let's turn to your article at Foreign Policy Magazine, A Practical Guide to Perpetual Peace, how to take realistic and realist steps towards a more utopian world order. And I'm sure this is music to the ears of a lot of our listeners if, because we spend so much time covering uh, these horrible wars around the world. And I just mentioned Sudan in passing, but there are others as well. Let's start with the, the way that, first of all, you frame the problem here. Let me just read from your article. First, world leaders and publics could start by taking realism, realism's lessons more seriously and cast a more skeptical eye on any ideology that claims to have found the key to ending war forever. 
Marxists thought overthrowing capitalism would remove incentives for war and usher in a tranquil socialist paradise. Liberals think spreading democracy will accomplish the same miracle, even if they don't know how to export democracy, and even if it requires us to first fight wars to end wars. Libertarians want to shrink the state, fascists want us to worship the state, and anarchists want to destroy the state completely, and each group is convinced that all will be well if we just follow their advice. Some believers think peace will emerge once everyone worships the right God, and some atheists maintain we would have a more peaceful world if we stopped worshipping any gods. Because these proposals all require imposing political beliefs on others who may not want to accept them, they typically make the problem worse rather than better. Now let's turn to the contrast of realism, which you say realism encourages humility. So what's right we've well, defined the problem now deliver the answer if you will <laughs> I, I think that step one is to recognize that human beings have fought the, each other for a millennia uh in in lots of different groups in tribes and city states and empires and nation states and all of that this is a recurring feature and it's uh you know it will continue uh, as long as uh, people form independent political communities, and therefore one should be very skeptical of anybody who comes in and says, I have found the answer to world peace. Just do what I tell you and everything is going to be fine. That's not likely to happen. And as I said in the piece, the problem is that requires imposing your will upon others, which of course leads to resistance and we're back uh, fighting each other once again. But what we ought to do is recognize this is a serious, enduring, perpetual problem and take steps to try and make the problem less severe. Not eliminate it entirely, that's too uh, too far to reach, but there are, are practical steps we could take that would make it far less likely, uh, probably uh, discourage the foolish wars that uh, statesmen sometimes uh, launch and then regret. Um, and if we could make a world that was, uh, you know, again, not perfectly peaceful, but more tranquil, more stable, uh, less fearful than the one we uh, currently inhabit, that would be progress. But how do you eliminate hate or reduce hate? I mean, hate is to some extent driving Putin. He's telling his people that the Ukrainians are a bunch of Nazis. Back in the Rwanda genocide, they'd referred to, uh, the Houthis referred to the Tutsis as cockroaches. Trump recently referred to his enemies as vermin. I could go on. And of course, there's no question that the Israelis are driven by hateful hate and revenge for what happened on October the 7th with the brutal attack and barbaric attack on Israeli civilians. And it's often been said that to an Israeli, every Palestinian child is a future terrorist. And to Palestinians, Every Israeli child is a future member of the IDF. So hatred clearly is in abundance in the Israel-Palestinian situation. Yeah, I, I, but on, I don't think hatred is the taproot of this. Uh, hate, hatred is a symptom of the conflict, and it certainly makes it worse. It makes it more likely. It tends to be something that leaders who are contemplating war will try to uh, rev up and instill. I think the, the primary uh, source of most conflict is fear and insecurity, right? And that that can uh, bleed into hatred um, uh, in some circumstances, but the taproot is not fundamentally some set of, uh, of ancient, ancient hatreds. What you have to do in situations like that, say, is convince uh, leaders that yes, there may be you know, deep animosity, long conflict, um, hatred on both sides, but you're not gonna solve the problem. You're not gonna improve your situation by going to war. That in fact, you may find yourself by uh, starting a war in worse shape than you were before. So it doesn't matter how you feel about the group on the other side, the fact is you're not gonna make things better by launching a war. Um, and I think that's uh, the, the lesson you wanna try to impart to as many leaders, that there may be circumstances where occasionally uh, states do well as a result of having to fight a war. I think it's usually uh, when they are forced to fight a defensive war and emerge triumphant. Uh, but the more you can convince world leaders that this is not the route to enhance security or prosperity, the less appealing it makes trying to solve problems of hatred or difference uh, by violence uh, less attractive. 
But can you make the case, though, Stephen, that the modern examples of bellicose and belligerent countries that started wars have then transformed into not so much pacifist states, but certainly states like Japan that has renounced aggressive wars and has somewhat a pacifist constitution. And Germany is the other example. Um, In other words, do you have to be defeated before you can be realistic about peace? Well, I don't think you have to be defeated. Um, You should be able to learn from others' experiences. It was Bismarck. Uh, who you know was uh, certainly no pacifist uh, by any means. Who who once said that it's uh, good to learn from one's mistakes, but it's even better to learn from other people's mistakes. Um, and the record of you know aggressive states that ultimately uh, led themselves to disaster is uh, is quite long. Whether it's Napoleon, uh, Germany twice in the 20th century, Japan, as you've mentioned, I would put the United States in Iraq as a classic example of a country that made itself worse off by launching a war uh, of choice as well. Um, And even uh, situations where states have fought wars and been victorious on the battlefield, it hasn't necessarily made their overall security situation better if it increased the number of enemies they faced, if they suddenly, uh, you know, alarmed others in ways they hadn't previously. So I think that the record of benefiting by the initiation of war tends to suggest that those that start them are rarely pleased with the ultimate results. But what about the fact that we have a military-industrial complex that gets the lion's share of the nation's treasure? Uh, Our budgets are now certainly a trillion dollars, if not more, even though they're about $900 if you factor in all the other components that they've sloughed off onto other departments, like the Coast Guard and and then, of course, uh, nuclear weapons with the Department of Energy and the pensions, etc. It's really certainly a, a realistic number would be over a trillion it's so the one thing that the that the, both the Democrats and the Republicans agree on. I mean, they're arguing over whether to give more money to Ukraine, but nobody's looking at the, <laughs> the overall defense budget, which is enormous, and what it's all about. So have we reached a point in this country where it doesn't seem to matter whether we win wars? You know, uh, you can go back to Korea, uh, Vietnam, and uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. When was the last time we won a war? I think the uh, the clearest case that we won a war is the first Gulf War in 1990-91, where the United States, along with 30 other countries and with full authorization from the United Nations Security Council, uh, went to war to evict uh, Iraq from Kuwait. Uh, we had limited objectives. We were fighting uh, essentially in response to an unprovoked attack by Iraq on Kuwait, uh, and we were successful. Uh, and at relatively low cost. And that's really the one example I can think of in the last 50 years that you could argue the United States was uh, both militarily and politically successful in in achieving its war aims at an acceptable cost. Um, And I think it's an instructive example, of course, because that's one where we were reacting to an unprovoked attack. We weren't launching an unprovoked uh, attack as well. Um, We weren't trying to transform Iraqi society We weren't trying to turn it into a democracy. We weren't trying to export our system and impose it on others. Uh, And in situations like that, uh, America's very powerful military can be quite effective and useful. I'd argue that American military power has had stabilizing effects in different parts of the world, again, when it was used in a defensive mode to deter attacks, to protect others. Uh, We have tended to fail when we have decided that it wasn't just defense we wanted to do, but rather we wanted to use that military power to try and change the local politics of some region of the world in fundamental ways. And that's something that our military is not good at doing. In fact, no military uh, is is good at doing, and those have tended uh, tended to fail. Over time, I'd say the other thing this has led us to do is to pay far less attention to uh, diplomacy 
and to peaceful resolution of conflicts because we've got this powerful military arm and that tends to dominate how we think about foreign policy and how we think about conducting relations with others. We like to issue ultimatums, we like to uh, impose sanctions, and when those don't work, then we start thinking about uh, using military power. And again, I think the track record of the last 40 or 50 years suggests that this doesn't work particularly well. It just kicks problems down the road. Uh, and you know, you get then eruptions as we're currently seeing in Gaza, which is a failure of a political and diplomatic process that the United States led for many years, not a failure of the American military per se. But why is it that our politics and our culture is dominated by war and preparation for war. We talked about the massive defense budgets. In effect, we are, at the expense of the quality of life, we are constantly improving the redundancy and quality of death. Um, well, the, the, first of all, this is, a, again, a feature of history that I think we do have to recognize, that human beings... Uh, have sort of never had a major technological in, in, uh, advantage or development that they haven't tried to figure out if there was a way to exploit it for violent purposes. And they do that because uh, they're fearful. In a world where there's no world government, where there's no central authority to protect states from each other, they will all worry about what others might do. And therefore, they'll worry if some other country acquires a set of capabilities that might allow them to dominate others. So I think that the competitive nature there is hardwired. The question is what you can do to mitigate its effects over time uh, without uh, pretending that you can eliminate it entirely. In our case, of course, we've also told ourselves that we're an unusual country, we're exceptional, we're the indispensable power, that it's our responsibility to keep order in every corner of the world. That's, I think, used both to justify uh, the disproportionate amounts that we spend on our military, but also, of course, is used to justify then using that military uh, in a variety of different ways in a variety of different places, even when it doesn't actually make the situation any better. But you haven't brought forth the argument, uh, Stephen, that maybe, I mean, is it possible for us to recognize that we could, instead of spending our treasure on death, that we can improve the quality of life, that we can have a much better society uh, as opposed to you know, destroying somebody else's country? Um, this is, I think, one of the, the great lessons that has fit yet to be learned, that um, it's not just the annual spending on defense that uh, is an opportunity cost, right? Every dollar that we spend you know, on an F-35 is a dollar that can't be spent on better roads, bridges, schools, health care, et cetera, or just uh, left in taxpayers' pockets, not spent uh, at all. Um, so there is an opportunity cost, but it's one that I don't think Americans often perceive. Uh, they don't recognize that some of the reasons that they're not living as well as they might here at home is because $6 trillion went down the rat hole in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, six trillion dollars, uh, essentially the cost of those uh, of those two wars. And yet we don't translate that into thinking that, well, that may be why we have budget deficits or that may be why taxes are as high as they are. Um, now, again, I'm not a pacifist and I'm not in favor of the United States, you know, cutting its defense budget to zero and trusting on the goodwill of everyone else around the world. But the point is you have to recognize that there are always trade-offs, that resources are finite, and that if we continue to spend that money and aren't getting a good return off on it, we ought to at least ask ourselves whether or not we might want to reallocate uh, some, of those, uh, some of those allocations to things that would benefit Americans more directly. Well, we sure didn't listen to President Eisenhower, a military man, in his farewell address, where he coined the phrase the military-industrial complex. It's a very eloquent speech, which I wish they taught in schools, or at least played the, the video, where he said, you know, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. Well, it, it's a wonderful speech. And, and Eisenhower, of course, was no dove, but he understood 
that uh, once you had concentrations of power and wealth and influence uh, invested in military spending and a military budget, that those were going to be very hard to control politically. And he also had the sense that international politics, you know, was uh, essentially a long game that you had to try and keep the United States strong and healthy across the board, not just with a massive military, but also with, you know, first class universities and really great high schools and really good primary schools, because that's how you had an educated and uh, unified population. That's how you had infrastructure that made the economy more productive, which also allowed you to have obviously a sophisticated military, but also allowed uh, people to live well. Uh, he understood that you had to think of the whole picture here, not just uh, not just one feature, and that he was already seeing how difficult it was to get control of all of the forces that were pushing for more spending, for more reliance on the military. And as I said a while back, the, the real difficulty here is it begins to distort how we approach foreign policy. Every foreign policy problem becomes one of national security, uh, one where we think primarily in terms of coercion, of pressuring others. We don't think about trying to figure out how we can resolve differences peacefully. We don't think about ways to make a conflict less likely as opposed to focusing solely on how we can win one if it actually uh, transpires. So if you think, for example, about the relationship between the United States and China, uh, in my view, that's going to be a competitive relationship, uh, po quite possibly a very intensely competitive relationship. And the more intense that rivalry is, the more both societies are going to pay for it. A greater risk of war, a greater attention paid to military competition, uh, greater suspicion of the other, greater reluctance to engage in mutually beneficial cooperation. I don't think we're going to be the best of friends for all sorts of reasons, but everything we can do in collaboration with the Chinese to lower the temperature in that relationship will leave both China and the United States better off. But of course, that's not the way it tends to get framed by politicians in both the Democratic and the Republican Party now, and by their counterparts, I might add, in the Chinese Communist Party as well. Well, Stephen Wald, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Nice talking with you as always. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine and the Robert and Rene Belfort Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University. He's the author of a number of books, including The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Global Response to U.S. Primacy. And his latest book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. And his latest article at Foreign Policy Magazine is A Practical Guide to Perpetual Peace, How to Take Realistic and Realist Steps Towards a More Utopian World Order. We're going to take a brief station break, we're back looking into the state of the economy in 2023 and what to expect in 2024. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And on this New Year's Day, we're joined with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And, and happy New Year to you. And, you know, if you go back to James Carville's adage that it's the economy, stupid, uh, we're now entering 2024, a very critical election year, where many feel, and I think quite accurately, and that democracy itself is on the ballot, given 
the authoritarian nature of Donald Trump and his latest fascist ramblings channeling Hitler. So it couldn't be more dire in that in that regard. But if indeed economics are really the key to whether or not we'll have a a second Biden term or a second Trump term, do you, first of all, do you agree with that analysis that economics is really going to be determining? In other words, people are not going to vote because of threats to democracy or all of the other things that me and other journalists worry about, but rather on the pocketbook issues. I think that's true in a sense, uh, Ian, uh, basically for the following reason. I think if, if people were, if the threat that Donald Trump represents were sort of fresh in people's minds, if people had not, in other words, kind of grown numb to it over the last number of years, as the mainstream media has sort of normalized Mr. Trump and treated him as an actual, you know, legitimate Republican candidate, if that hadn't happened, so that people actually were perceiving him for what he is, rather than for the kind of um, slightly, you know, kind of anti sort of, how should I call it, sort of cleansed by normalization um, figure that the, the mainstream media has been giving us, then I think they would actually be more concerned about preserving the democracy. And those sorts of issues would be top of mind. But what tends to happen, it seems to me, once something becomes kind of normalized, is that people then, you know, revert to the mean, as it were. And I think the mean is for them to think in terms of sort of pocketbook issues, economic issues, and, and maybe more importantly, even what appears to them to be the sort of immediate economic future. So how do you see the economy then in 2024? Particularly, I know it's a long forecast, but uh, particularly, you know, in the fall of 2024. Yeah, I think if we think, uh, if we sort of divide um, the conversation about the economy into sort of two segments, um, one focused on where we are now and have been um, over the last several years, and then the other focused on what appears to be, you know, not too distant, not too far ahead, but somewhat ahead, um, that will be sort of helpful. So when thinking in terms of the present and the sort of immediate past, the news is all kind of good um, in the sense that those of us who were saying that the inflationary pressures were transitory and that they were supply rooted and that they were price gouging rooted have been vindicated. That's just turned out to be true. Uh, and so prices stopped rising uh, even later last year, and, and they, the, the rate at which they were rising slowed down steadily up until about now. And a real important threshold uh, has been reached just um, you know, was, was reached just sort of toward the end of December. Um, and that threshold was that at this point, prices had actually begun to come down. Right. So we use two different words for those things. Right. We refer to we refer to the sort of slowing or, or ending of inflation as disinflation. And then we refer to the sort of reversal of inflation, where prices begin to come down again as deflation. And the critical thing that happened in December, at least as far as inflation is concerned, is that we did make the, the, the transition, the pivot from disinflation to deflation. And that's, I think, very good news insofar as one of the primary remaining concerns on the minds of many middle class and even lower and upper middle class Americans was that while inflation itself had slowed down, prices were still higher than they had been the year before. We also know now that real wages and real salaries are significantly up. That is to say that they've continued to rise even while prices ceased rising and then reversed. And that means people's real incomes are going up. And so all of that is kind of good news. But there's always a lag time, right? It takes a little while for people to kind of, quote unquote, normalize that, right? To sort of realize that things have gotten better and that they're bound more or less to stay that way. That's all looking pretty good. But here, I think, is the continuing uh, concern. And so now we're pivoting from the present and the immediate past to the, the sort of near term future. Um, the sort of AI revolution that we're all hearing about, I suspect, is beginning to spook some people. Right? There have been recent developments to the point where AI is actually taking bar exams um, of a kind that lawyers take and passing them is taking medical exams of the kinds that you know would be doctors take and passing them and in effect what this means is that we're faced with the prospect of even high-end skills being rendered sort of obsolete as human skills and that is going to cause i think a long-term peril uh, to people's employment prospects and hence to the prospects of the economy to kind of keep growing because of consumer spending that comes from people who are being paid adequately as we approach that point, I think we're going to have to start getting serious 
about transforming our economy from one in which people um, sort of transition from being mere employees of businesses to being actual owners of their own businesses. I think, in other words, we're probably looking uh, in the not too distant future to a, a, a new economic model uh, pursuant to which we have worker co-ops, we have worker-owned firms, we have firms that are owned by their own customers and the like, right, rather than the way things currently are, where you have a, a stark division between people who earn their income off of capital, i.e. people who own all of the companies that the rest of us work for, and then people who, of course, earn their incomes through salaries or wages, which is pretty much all the rest of us, the 99%. We've been able to kind of put off a reckoning um, pursuant to which people become owners of their own businesses rather than employees of other people who own businesses um, for, for a while now. But I think that when you get to, you know, sort of AI technologies whereby even high-end human skills that people have hitherto thought would always be human skills, when even those become automatable, so to speak, or machinable, um, at that point, you can't really put off the inevitable any longer. You have to start getting serious uh, about transitioning to a, a worker-owned economy. And this is pretty good timing because my next book, uh, which is coming out with Yale University Press this very year, is on precisely how to do that. Well, you have to add to that, you know, the fact that driverless cars are happening. There's so much automation going on. You wonder whether there's any way in the world that uh, you can keep employing people. And, of course, this has led led a lot of suggestions about a universal income. I mean, and Mm -hmm. and, and those techno-utopians on Silicon Valley, the Musks and Peter Thiel and all those horrible people, they envision yeah, I, they envision people literally getting tokens like a on the dole so that you can spend your yeah. day inside Mark Zuckerberg's helmet. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a, that's when they push that they sort of push that as though they were being benevolent or visionary. But it's actually a way of, of course, maintaining their own privilege, right? Because they continue to be the ones who own all of this stuff, while the rest of us just live off of the table scraps that they're sometimes willing uh, to share with us. And that's obviously not satisfactory. So, so to put it in sort of slogan terms, and that's sort of the way I do it at some points in the book that I mentioned, which is going to be called The Republic of Producers, by the way. Um, it's the idea is, look, if the robots can do everything uh, or nearly everything in the near future, the only solution is for us ourselves to own the robots. In other words, you know, don't let Elon or Mark own all of them have all of the citizenry owning the robots, so to speak. In order to have a democratically controlled economy, you'll have to have democratically controlled robotics and democratically controlled AI. And my own view for what it's worth is that that basically means a worker-owned economy going forward. Well, we had a glimpse of something along those lines during the COVID epidemic where people were stuck at home and they didn't have to commute and pollute uh, and didn't have to spend their hours in some office building doing stuff that they mm-hmm. could do just do as well at, at home, if not better, mm-hmm. meaning that the home life improves, that parents spend more time with their children. So there's all of those upsides. So do you think that at the, at the end of the day, a new economy based on robotics, et cetera, mm-hmm. it's all about a failure of imagination. I mean, if you could mm-hmm. have a situation where every individual was able to have the time to explore their natural talents. Somebody might be good at woodworking. Somebody might be good at weaving. Somebody might be good at making pots. Somebody might be good at fixing cars. Uh, Is that Mm -hmm. the way you envision uh, this new economy? It is. It is. I think um, we ought to be viewing, this this has sort of been a, I think a disease of capitalism at various stages ever since the 19th century, right? The, the ambivalence with which we embrace technology, because on the one hand, technology promises being able to get a lot more done uh, with the expense of a lot less labor. And it, ordinarily, that would be a good thing, right? It means, you know, we're, we're able to get more done ourselves without having to work as hard to do it. And that gives us more time than to develop other capacities, including our creative and artistic capacities, and even our sort of spiritual capacities, uh, as it were. But the ambivalence comes in uh, because, of course, it also means that there's less need for labor. And that means if we have an economy where people are dependent upon other people hiring them as labor, 
for their incomes, well, then technology is sort of bad news and at the same time that it's good news. But the obvious solution to that, of course, is to eliminate the ambiguity of it or the ambivalence of it by saying, let's make it an, an unmitigated good. Let's make it an unalloyed good. How do we do that? Well, basically by ensuring that everybody who is affected by the new technology owns it, right? Rather than sitting back and, and dreading what the very small number of people who own it all are willing to do or willing to give them or, you know, what they're willing to hire them for. And there's no reason we have to do that, right? I mean, in a certain sense, what we're faced with at the moment is the prospect of a, a new kind of techno-feudalism, right? And the key thing to remember about feudalism is, you know, three or four wealthy families would own all of the land in the, in the country in question. And insofar as the economy back in the medieval period was still agricultural, to own all the land was effectively to own the economy. And then nobody else could survive unless they were willing to accept the, the terms that were sort of laid down to them by the few rich families who owned all the land. Basically, you, 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 you harvest it all, you grow it all, and then we'll let you keep, you know, one one millionth of it just not to keep you alive so that you can keep harvesting for us and we get all the rest. Well, in effect, we're doing the same thing now, or at least we're, we're sort of faced with the possibility that the same thing gets replicated now, but in the realm of tech. So now the, the few big families are, you know, the Zuckerbergs and the, and the Musks and a few others who own all of this technology. And now that it's a tech economy rather than an agricultural economy, that means the robotics, the AI, it's the sort of latter-day equivalent of the land in medieval times. And the only way right, to break out of this is, just, is to ask ourselves, well, why is it that just, you know, four or five families own all of this? It's not as though they're responsible for the making of it or for the creation or establishment of it. They're just sort of lucky beneficiaries. And if that's the case, well, why aren't we all lucky beneficiaries? So I think that it's becoming inevitable that we're going to move that way. It probably would have happened a long time earlier had it not been the fact, had it not been for the fact that the AI uh, took some time to get to the point where it is now, right? So it took some time to get to the point where it rendered even high-end labor superfluous. Because before it did that, we could still at least, you know, kind of cling to the illusion that, well, you know, we're sort of moving to a post-industrial economy. So the thing is, it's a knowledge economy now. So if you just get a little bit more education and incur a little bit more higher education debt, you'll be able to sort of stay ahead. Well, even that lie is no longer going to be maintainable when it comes to be the case that even you know highly sophisticated knowledge workers and scientists and the like are themselves replaced right by by AI so at this point um, we're now faced with um, the inevitable and, and in, a, in a form that we can't really evade any longer it seems to me and that's sort of why the book um, does what it does and it's really based on uh, essentially an insight that you just gave voice to Ian. you said that you suggested that maybe the failure up to now has been a failure of a Imagination, and that's exactly what it is, in my view. We don't know what it is to imagine an economy that's worker-owned, right? Rather than owned by a few people who own all of the, the means of production, so to speak, in the old 19th century idiom, or the productive assets, to use the 20th century language. We don't know what it's like to get away from an economy that's owned by a few people or a few families that own all those productive assets, while the rest of us just, um, you know, labor under a wage contract or a salary contract with, with those, those few wealthy people. But if you start freeing up your mind a little bit and imagining how it might be the case that you might have worker-owned firms, worker co-ops, customer-owned firms, and the like, then it all becomes much more thinkable once you actually start imagining it. And so a big part of what this new book, A Republic of uh, Producers, is going to be, uh, or is in draft form at this point or in manuscript form, is a, a lengthy, uh, detailed sequence of thought experiments, basically imagining what an economy that we all own rather than being owned by, uh, can look like and how we can get there, how we can finance it, how we can make it real. So how would your worker-owned economy differ from the communist economy in the Soviet Union, which obviously was in the name of the workers, but uh, the, right. the apparatchiks and the bureaucrats uh, and uh, the Kremlin ran everything and benefited. Right. I think I think the key, Ian, is to take the worker-owned part in a literal sense rather than in a sort of metaphorical sense, right? I mean, in the early days, the first, the early Soviet economy was meant to be a worker-owned economy in that sense. And indeed, the Russian word Soviet simply means worker co-op. That's just Russian for worker co-op or labor co-op. The problem I think that the Soviet Union faced after it had been um, in existence for even just a few years 
was it was immediately encircled and threatened by hostile capitalist countries. And indeed, a lot of Americans don't know this, but the United States itself invaded the new Soviet Union in 1918-1919. And ironically, irony of ironies, it was the Germans, the French, and the English, and the Americans, and the Turks, and the Japanese, who had all been fighting each other in the First World War, were suddenly all on the same page when it came to this new Soviet Union. And so they invaded it together and tried to strangle it out of existence and to kill it. And that effectively forced the Soviet Union to become a kind of bastion state, a kind of fortress state, because it was surrounded by aggressive enemies that actually were invading it. And that made it a little harder uh, to, to sort of move right away to a a true worker-owned economy as distinguished from an economy owned by the state in the putative name of the workers. And my view is that, uh, you know, for one thing, of course, I think a lot of the Western portrayals of the way the Soviet Union was are, are quite distorted. But even in so far as there's any truth to them, I think we have to remember that that truth would have been rooted in or brought about by the fact that this new country that was a, a new experiment of a worker-owned economy was immediately invaded. So my own view for what it's worth is that you know the U.S. is not surrounded by hostile enemies in the way that the new Soviet Union was, nor is the West in general. And, and so it seems to me that if we decide to get serious about a worker-owned economy or an economy that's basically labor co-ops rather than capital co-ops owned by just a few, a small piece of the population, we would be able to do it in a way because we're not surrounded. We don't have to sort of turn into a fortress economy or, you know, sort of do everything we can to sort of stoke production of weaponry as quickly as possible to defend ourselves against invaders or whatever. We will actually have the luxury of getting it right in the way that perhaps the Soviet Union itself would have had had we not all been attacking it as soon as it came into existence. Well, you also have to mention Joseph Stalin. I mean, he turned the whole country into a into a police state, uh, which is what it's become well, today under Putin. Yeah, well, the thing to remember, I, I always think at least, the thing to remember about Stalin is he came into power at precisely the time that the Nazis were beginning to emerge uh, in a big way, or at least anti-communist forces were beginning to emerge uh, in Germany and elsewhere. Um, and so it's, I think you can view Stalin in, in part as a sort of response to the, feel, the feeling of peril and threat, because remember what Stalin did was he basically jump-started Soviet mass production in a gigantic way in order to make the Soviet Union into an industrial powerhouse that could defend itself against an increasingly uh, aggressive-looking Germany and increasingly aggressive-looking United States and, and other countries. And so my own thought, I mean, maybe he was pathological too. I just don't know enough about him as a human being to, to sort of weigh in on, on that. But I do think that it's easy to understand how a person who um, who holds that we've got to modernize and industrialize as rapidly as possible at all costs to be able to outproduce our enemies, which of course they did in the Second World War. Soviet Union produced the best tanks of the war and it produced them in much greater abundance than any other country did. He was in a sense, you know, rendered almost inevitable by, I think, those surrounding threats. And that's sort of why I'm saying that if we were to try a worker-owned economy now, we might actually be much more likely to be successful because we don't have the same sorts of threats that would then warrant, you know, the, the sort of um, emergence of, of a Stalin. Right. Um, or somebody who, you know, looks like what the West has tended to portray Stalin as looking like. But how do you deal with the financialization of our economy in the context of this new economy that you're describing? Because that's isn't that an inherent problem with our economy? And that is that it's a greater and greater percentage of our economy has been taken over by Wall Street. And they don't produce yeah. anything like the the rubber barons of old at least produced stuff. But these people yeah. just make money out of money and mm -hmm. they're effectively kind of parasites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two of the books that I've already got out there that you mentioned in the opening, um, the Financing the Green New Deal book and then more in greater detail, the Citizen's Ledger book are both completely about that. Essentially, they're about how to definancialize the economy. And the core here, the, the key here, is to distinguish directly right, between productive investment and merely speculative investment, and then ensure that any financial institution or any financial market or any financial practice that is backed up by the public, that is backstopped by the public, 
is only going or flowing in productive directions rather than in destructive speculative directions. And the financialization that you describe is essentially the opposite of that. And we're still living with that, by the way. All sorts of free Fed money, that's public money, all sorts of free Federal Reserve credit money flows directly to Wall Street houses that simply use the money to bid up the prices of already existing financial instruments, i.e. to cause hyperinflation in the financial asset markets. That's what happened in the lead up to 2008. That's what happened, of course, um, before 2020. Um, And that's financialization. And the thing to do is to stop that. And the way to stop that is you say, okay, Fed money, public money, will never be permitted again to flow in those sorts of directions. If you've got money of your own as a rich private sector person and you want to play the markets like you would play um, uh, Las Vegas, fine. You you can go ahead and do that if it doesn't cause any harm. But the thing is, the overwhelmingly greater part of the national money supply, that is to say the overwhelmingly greater part of the capital stock, the finance capital stock of this country, is actually publicly generated or publicly backstopped. And it would be be overnight, like tomorrow, Congress could pass a law effectively prohibiting the flows of those public monies in those speculative directions and guiding them solely in productive directions. And those books that you kindly mentioned show exactly how to do that. There's even a draft bill, a draft statute in one of them to show precisely how how to do that. So that's definitely a big piece of the story, uh, Ian, and perhaps for for that very reason, um, the Republic of Producers book, which is the one coming out next, does include chapters that are sort of a re Prees of the uh, financial uh, lessons of those earlier books um, that, that you mentioned that they put out last year. So just to, to go back to the Silicon Valley, I mean, mm-hmm. there's this anti-humanist view that, for example, Mark Andreessen's manifesto for free markets as a vehicle for mm-hmm. the engine of perpetual material creation, growth and abundance, etc. Then you have the accelerationists like uh, Nick Land, who reject the need of present-day humanity in favor of the sort of mythological future of humanity in living on Mars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, these... these strike me uh, as fantasies that are indulged in by the winners of the current lopsided set of arrangements. In other words, the people who are at the top of the heap, owing to the perversity of the structure of our economy right now, maybe console themselves or make themselves feel like they're maybe less selfish, less robber baronish than they really are by fantasizing in putatively utopian ways or putatively benevolent uh, ways or um, you know, sort of uh, humanity-loving ways. But they, these people sort of, in, in those fantasies, they kind of remind me a bit of Ivan Karamazov in, in what is perhaps the greatest novel ever written, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And the intellectual brother, um, Ivan Karamazov, is uh, very poignantly described as loving humanity, but never having been able to bring himself to love a human being. Right. He never met a human being he actually loved, but he loved humanity. And you can you, you know the type, right? It's it's sort of it's a way to if you're kind of a self-centered person who's greedy and grasping and not letting anybody else get their just desserts, you might be able to make yourself feel a little bit better about yourself if you say, Well, it's because I'm doing this for a higher cause, the cause of quote humanity or the cause of future humanity, since you know, this way I can be dedicated to people who don't exist yet and who never will exist in my lifetime because they're future humans. Um, that's the way it looks to me. And I think it ought to be viewed accordingly as essentially a self-exculpating and self um, uh, sort of soothing fantasy by rich robber barons. And, you know, rather than helping them uh, indulge in these fantasies, we should simply deprive them of the capacity to fantasize in that way by seeing to it that the wealth of society is spread across the entirety of society rather than concentrated in just a few crazy rich people. But it doesn't seem to be an accident that some of the richest people on the planet, like Musk and Zuckerberg and uh, Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, talk mm-hmm. about going to Mars, which is totally stupid and impractical. And now we're learning that Zuckerberg is, has this huge compound on Kauai in the Hawaiian Islands where he's going to mm-hmm. build this underground bunker uh, where yeah. he, he can live out the apocalypse 
And the same for Peter Thiel, you know, with his underground bunker in New Zealand. What is it about yeah. the, the great capitalists of this age, the Carnegies and Rockefellers of this age, have this sick view of, of abandoning this planet mm-hmm. for some unlivable planet and, mm-hmm. and also expecting this planet to self-destruct and taking no social responsibility? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just escapism. I think this is, you know, to kind of continue with the feudalism analogy and the the sort of Middle Ages or Dark Ages analogy. I mean, those few families who owned all the land, right, the the barons, they were robber barons, too, of course. Nobody ever talks now about how they got all of that land. They robbed it. They were robber barons. But in any event, you know, an image that we're all quite familiar with from all the the stories and movies and stuff that are set in in the Dark Ages is people who live in castles, right? Well, the, the very small number of rich families who owned all of that land that they then had the peasants and the serfs rendering productive for them lived behind moats, right? They surrounded these castles with thick walls that couldn't be breached and thick, you know, wide bodies of water that couldn't be swam across and you can only get across in a drawbridge. Um, and that was their way of protecting themselves, uh, both against their own peasants and, and serfs in the event that they rebelled and against anybody else who might try to take what they what they have, what they effectively have um, accumulated off the sweat of the brows of their own peasants and, 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 and serfs. And it seems to me that when somebody like Musk or Bezos or whatever talk about going to Mars, Mars is just the castle and the space between Earth and Mars is just the moat. Or if it's Jeff Bezos, you know, going underground, doing a kind of Hamas tunnel thing under his own, you know, complex, it's essentially the same thing, you know, going underground and maybe having his little compound surrounded by electric fences with barbed wire and the like. That's just his version of a moat. The funny thing is in both cases, it's a bit of a fantasy, right? Because even in medieval periods, those castles didn't really afford you protection if there wasn't anybody making your land productive, right? You never, you never saw those, you know, those barons uh, or their baronesses going out and growing the stuff in the fields themselves. They only had a means of sustenance if they actually shared the world with the people they were exploiting to make those foodstuffs available to them. And it's sort of the same way, I think, with these robber barons today. It's a bit of a, a silly fantasy to think that you can live on Mars without people to kind of exploit and, and, and uh, maintain you on Mars. I mean, maybe they think that the robots will be the um, the serfs or the peasants or something. But something tells me that you're not really going to be able to make a go of it on Mars if it's just two or three people with some robots. I mean, you need, a, you need an entire civilization to colonize a planet, um, just like you need a huge number of serfs and peasants to make your land productive if you're a castle-owning baron in the medieval period. So in, in my view, the, the parallels are quite striking, and that all that has differed is the sort of material base on which the fantasies are, are drawn, since we're living in a more a sort of post-agricultural period and a more technological period. The particular examples look a little different because they are different industries, but the the basic structure that we're describing here and the kind of social inequality and the the exploitative basis for that inequality is is identical, it seems to me, in both cases. Well, Robert Harkin, I thank you very much for joining us here on this New Year's Day. Thanks so much, Ian. So great to talk to you, and what a a wonderful way to bring in the new year. (laughs) Thank you, and Happy New Year to you. And Again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and he continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy, and he's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org 
where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by